just felt like the Lord wanted me to say that He loves every single person that is here. From the back, to the front, to the side, to the every single person here, God formed you in your mother's womb. He knows you, He loves you, and He's very, very tender and patient and kind towards you. <clears throat> All right, thank you, band. Thank you, everyone. This morning, um, for those of you who weren't here last week, I kicked off a series on faith. Um, and I'll be speaking about faith today and faith next week. Yes, there's lots that one can say about faith, um, but the overarching theme that I have for us this month is faith and sanctification. Right? We think of faith in terms of moving mountains and achieving great things and dreaming big dreams for God and doing them and God doing mighty, powerful things, but which is all amazing and great. That's awesome. But I believe there's something for us that God would say to us about faith as it pertains to sanctification. So sanctification is that process whereby we become more and more like Christ, more and more victorious over sin, more and more pure, more and more holy, more and more righteous, um, just more and more like Jesus. Okay, so the fancy word for that is sanctification. But there's an element of faith to that that I think we don't always get. We almost treat that like our project. Like, thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. Now I will sanctify myself to please you. But the gospel goes so deep, okay, so that even your sanctification is a work of unmerited favor by God in your life. He does that in your life. Often the thing that's lacking for us is faith and belief that he wants to do that, that he can do that, right? Often we lean very much on our own understanding. And that's why we struggle. That's why we fail a lot. And we all fail. I'm not, I'm not about to give you today the step to permanent success. Um, you guys know me and this church better than that. But... Um, I believe God's got something really amazing to us. And, and I, so I just want to say, as I said last week, the gospel is, is, is very contrary to our carnal minds. It, it's completely different. So the things that we're going to see from the word today are hard to accept with your mind. It doesn't make sense. So, but I do want to encourage you when scripture says, Lean not on your own understanding. If there was a time to not lean on your own understanding, it's when you read these things in Romans, because it doesn't make sense, carnally speaking. And, and all of us are engaged in very professional environments, right? It's almost a default for us to activate that space, the logical space, the whatever, you know. We're all accountants and engineers and all sorts of things, data scientists and what, what. But... Um, God wants to, to give us revelation this morning, so I want to say, open your heart, approach God with simplicity this morning, um, and allow Him to do a work in your heart. So very briefly, um, today is talking about union with Christ. So last week, as I said, we're going to be anchored in Romans. I'm going to give you a five-minute summary of what we did last week, but last week we looked at Romans 3 and 4, we read through all of it, and we looked at the nature of faith. Today we're going to be looking at Romans 5 and 6. Six and a half, or half of six, so, and we're going to be looking at union with Christ. 
But very briefly, just last week what we did is we went through Romans 3 and 4, which talks about justification by faith. And then I'll give you some highlights of the Greek words that we looked at last time. We saw that believe comes from a root word, or comes from the word for faith, which comes from another root word. So that first root word is pytho, and it means to persuade. Okay, Paul, like When Paul says in Romans 8, I am persuaded that neither death nor life can separate us from the love of Christ. Okay, then we moved on. So the word that comes from that is pistis, which is an assurance, and in biblical terms, especially a reliance upon Christ for salvation. Paul, as we read last week, talking about Abraham, and says, and this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Faith there is not a mere belief about him, that he is a real, it's an entrustment, it's an assurance and a reliance upon him. Okay, so from that word, pistis, we get the word pisteo, which is the word for believe, which is also all throughout the New Testament. And that carries on the theme, and it means to have faith in, upon, and to entrust, especially one's spiritual well-being to Christ. And this famous verse that we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Other translations say believes upon Okay, so what are we trying to get at is it's, it's entrusting yourself, plain and simple. Faith in God, faith in Christ means entrusting yourself to Him. Okay, then we, we, we carried on through, um, so Romans, Paul, Paul builds, Paul's whole theology, well the whole New Testament theology of justification by faith, okay, justification again means being set right with God, as in He's dealt, dealt with your sin. The wrath that was directed towards you because of sin has been removed. You are justified. You are reckoned to be righteous in God's sight. When he looks at you, he says, you're righteous. He says, Ben, you're righteous. Andre, you're righteous. Okay, and he reckons that righteousness to us when we entrust ourselves to Jesus. The whole New Testament theology is about Abraham being justified by faith. So the backdrop to that is that Jews lived by the law and thought that living by the law commended them to God, that they could be righteous according to the law and accepted by God. Paul says even before the law was there, God had a different way of being justified in his sight, and it was through Abraham. So Paul in Romans 3 talks about Abraham, and the key scripture is from Genesis 15 verse 6. There, the word for believe is a Hebrew word, aman, and it means the same, to trust or to believe and to have assurance. Okay, so to have faith, to believe is to trust. Very crucial. And God speaks a promise to Abraham and says that you'll be the father of many nations. Abraham says, Lord, but I don't even have a son. The Lord says, okay, go outside. Do you see those stars? As many as those stars are, you will have descendants. And you will, I will give you a son from your own body, your and Sarah's body. You will have a biological son. At that moment, Abraham doesn't go into analysis paralysis or the hundred and thousand what ifs. Lord, did you know that I'm actually a hundred years old and Sarah is too? At that point, Abraham believed the Lord. He said, okay, Lord, I believe you. I believe you can. I believe you will. You know what that does for God's heart? God says, man. There's nothing, I want to see, there's nothing I want to see more in people's hearts than that response to me, that response to my word and to my promises. 
And God reckons Abraham righteous. As in, independent of, of Abraham's performance, he had no good performance up until that point. He was a pagan in a pagan land. He, wasn't, he didn't earn that in any way. So, <clears throat> we looked at that last week, and Romans then talks about the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. And so, we just looked at the nature of that faith. Number one, we see that it was simple, very simple. Our trust towards Jesus must also be simple. When God says to us, to man, hey, there's a sin problem. Here is my son. He's, he's, he's dealt with that problem. Trust in him. We say, yes, Lord. Okay. If, if you still try and trust on your own performance, you will continue to fail. And you actually won't have that justification. If you are still trying to say to God, yes, Lord, that's all great what Jesus did. It's amazing. It really moves my heart. But just to make sure, I'm just going to make sure, uh, I don't know, I give food to poor people or, uh, I don't know, whatever other holy activities we like to think of. Oh, Lord, I, I won't go to this or that place or watch this or that or, or do this or that. If we are in any way still relying upon our own righteousness, it means we haven't fully comprehended what it means to entrust yourself to Jesus, okay? Your sinful nature has absolutely no power to bring about a pleasing life to God. Man's own nature cannot, cannot, no matter how much prayer, no matter how much zeal, no matter how much effort, the sinful nature of man cannot produce righteousness or anything that's acceptable to God. What's acceptable to God is faith. When you say, okay, Lord, my best efforts are as filthy rags before your sight. I let go of that. I let go of that. When I draw near to you every morning, Lord, it's not my righteous performance that I'm banking on. It's your righteousness towards me, your justification of me that I'm banking on. And it's not faith in faith. That might sound funny to say, but we explored that last week. What, can, what we can sometimes do is we see, we see something and we see that it requires faith. Then instead of Seeing that thing and seeing God behind it as the one who enables it, brings it about, we look, oh, it needs faith, and then we look back in. What's my faith like? Where's my faith? Okay, it's just important to remember that the object of our faith is God, not our own faith. If, if your faith is in the quality of your faith, it's also just going to lead to a cycle of disappointment. Okay, your faith is towards God. Um, so very briefly, we looked at the rest of Romans, says, unpacks this and says, Abraham, uh, he looked at his own body, he, his faith wasn't based on the vigor of his own body, but on the word of God, because his body had no vigor. And it was fixed on God's power. Abraham reckoned that God could actually do this, despite the age of his body. And Abraham believed that God could. The other important thing we saw was that it faces facts. It doesn't pretend. Abraham looked at his own body. He didn't pretend like he was 20 years old. He said, Lord, I'm 100. Sarah's also 100. We've never had children, but I believe you. Okay. That should bring a lot of freedom to us. Sometimes there's pressure on us for faith to be some sort of denial of reality. Okay. It's not. Faith looks at reality and looks at God and says, okay, God, you are sovereign and powerful over this. I believe in your power. I believe in your commitment and in your word. So in that way, it overcomes doubts, and it's the same 
for us. Our faith in Jesus is the same. God reckons us righteous when we trust in Jesus. <clears throat> Another illustration of this that I'll quickly share, which I didn't share last week, was the, um, is the picture of the thief on the cross next to Jesus. So in Luke's gospel, there's, he gives an account of the people who die next to Jesus, two thieves. I don't know if there's anyone here who knows the music of Don Francisco. Ah, ah, ah. Pleasantly surprised. Um, anyway, he's got a great song about this, uh, which you, you can ask me about it later if you don't know which one I'm talking about. But anyway, he, he sings about this. He gives an account of this in song from the perspective of the thief, and it's amazing. But the long and the short is that when Jesus went to the cross, two thieves died next to him. They were also crucified next to him. The one thief joined in on the mocking with the soldier saying, Yo, this guy said he was a king. He can't even save himself from this cross. And they mocked him and mocked him and mocked him. And this thief said, hey, if you're a king, why don't you get us down from here? Why don't you save us and yourself? The other thief on the other side had a very different response. He responds to this thief and says, don't you know that we're getting what we deserve? We've been sinners all our life long. We've stolen. We've done all these things. What we are getting is just. It's what we deserve. But this man is innocent. What we see in that thief, he then goes on to say, Lord, after he's spoken to his co-thief on the other side, he says to the Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your throne. And Jesus says, tonight you'll be with me in paradise. And that's a beautiful illustration given to us. Because what we see in that thief is... Uh, no good record up to that point. He was being crucified for being a criminal. And also, no opportunity to prove himself in the ways that we often try to prove ourselves, right? He didn't even have time to add to this to somehow make himself acceptable to God. What was it about him that made him acceptable to God? So I believe just very simply what we see there is a recognition, okay? The thief has a recognition. You could call it a repentance but you, you almost couldn't have that repentance without that recognition. What he sees is his own sin. He says to the other thief, we've been guilty all our lives long. This is our just punishment. And then he has a recognition of who Jesus is. Right? Both of them believed in Jesus in the thin, uh, superficial sense of belief. You know? you know how we believe in lots of stuff and we've got faith for lots of stuff in the world. People who don't even worship God also have faith in this or that, the universe or your parents, or whatever. They're very um, shallow uses of the word faith and belief. As it went forward, belief about Jesus, both thieves had that. The one just didn't entrust himself to Jesus. He couldn't. The other one recognizes Jesus as a king and as a savior. He recognizes him as someone with authority to save. He says, Jesus, when you come into your throne... I see that you are a king. Remember me. I see that you are also a savior. I see also that you have love for me. You have authority and power to rescue me from what I actually deserve. And Jesus saves him. Jesus says, tonight you're with me. And what we see in that as well is a union with Christ. So that was a bit of a long intro, but, 
just fleshing it out for you guys, setting you up to think about union with Christ. Romans 5 verse 1 says this, Therefore, okay, we're just going to read verse 1, but it says, Therefore, after Paul has sketched this whole thing about justification by faith, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've got another Greek word for you from Strong's 1 5, it's number 1515 in the Strong's if you're interested. But it's the Greek word for peace, which is irene. I don't know if we've got it there, say, Brown, but we understand peace as the absence of conflict, generally speaking. That's how we use it. There are lots of other ways. Shark has done some great sermons on Shalom if you want to dig up in the archives. But the connotations for the word peace, it comes from a verb, iro, which means to join. Okay, so peace means by implication, prosperity, or one. Peace, quietness, rest, or to set at one again. So when we read Romans 5 verse 1 that says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not, mere, it's not only that wrath for sin has been removed, so now conflict is gone. It's more than that. We have peace with Christ in that we are joined to Him. We are set at one with Him. Okay, union with Christ is an essential part of the gospel. It's an essential part of our understanding and how we even attempt to live a life that pleases to God or pleases God or to follow Him. Union with Christ is the thing, okay? Romans says it. We have peace with Him through Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained faith into this grace in which we stand. Ephesians 2 verse 6 says, um, do you have it there? Ephesians 2 verse 6, for while we were still weak, oh no, this is still Romans 5, I'll just read it to you, Ephesians 2 verse 6, speaking of union with God, says it like this, this is from verse 4 to 6, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our justification meant that we had a union with Christ. We see there a number of times, with him, with him, with him. That's with Christ. The point I want to make is that justification unites you to Christ doesn't just give you a clean record and then the rest is up to you. It unites you to him. Colossians 2 also has this. Colossians 2 verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul's trying to make the point that our justification means union with Christ. And the whole rest of Romans 5 and 6, which we're going to read just now, develops this truth in more detail. In more detail than anywhere else in Scripture almost. Paul really talks us about this. So, but what does union with Christ have to do with faith? You might ask. Well, as I said earlier, our typical understanding of faith tends to be event-based. Faith for this thing to happen. 
sometimes to practical intents and purposes, we live almost distant from God and we bring we switch on the faith when we need something big to happen. We need faith so that God can go to work. And even in terms of our relationship with him and justification, our understanding of salvation in the gospel, we might think of him almost as like a forgiveness ATM, where he forgives your sins, and then you go away and have a, give it a good own, and then you fail, and then you come back to him and say, oh, sorry, Lord, can I have some forgiveness? Gives you forgiveness, and then you go away again, and you try to think. And we often, I'm saying that because that's how I've lived a lot of my life, not understanding the gospel fully. And you, you, your, your, the depth of your understanding of the gospel is that there's a place of forgiveness. There's a throne of mercy. So I can go to the throne of mercy, which is true. But it's also a throne of grace to help in time of need. So the full depth of salvation takes you out of sin. It doesn't leave you to a life cycle of struggling with sin, failing, coming back for forgiveness, failing, coming back. It actually leads to greater and greater degrees of transformation, sanctification, where sin gets left behind. You don't keep fighting the same enemy, the same old sins. What God has got for you is deep work of transformation through the gospel. Salvation means union to Christ, which means certain realities that we're going to look at now. And we must accept these realities by faith and exercise them daily. In the gospel, in our salvation, there is power and victory for sanctification, transformation, and a life that pleases God. Okay, without further ado, let's read Romans 5, verse 1 to 11. <clears throat> Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, as weak as that thief that died next to Jesus, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So there we have a continuation of the theme of peace with God, being union with Christ. Reconciliation. And being saved by his life. It's like he's speaking of justification, but more than that. And, and yes, we've been, we've been set right and the wrath is removed, but more than that. That more than that is what Paul is about to start unpacking in Romans 5 verse 12. 
to 21, which we can read now. <clears throat> so then he starts developing the theme of union. So just stick with me. I'm not going to explain every single part of it. As I said last week, we could do Romans for five years if we wanted to, but I'm just going to focus on the stuff that, that I feel God has put on, put on my heart for, for this series. <clears throat> but speaking about union with Christ, Paul elaborates more and says from verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And now, just for the sake of following, that was verse 12. From verse 13 to 17, Paul kind of does a side note. And then in 18, he comes back to what he was saying in verse 12. Okay, so just bear that in mind. We're going to read through it now from verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. On that, he says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now in verse 18, he says, therefore, linking back to verse 12, therefore, as one trespass to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now where the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. <sighs> okay, that's, there's lots of very technical stuff in there, but let's break it down. What Paul is doing when he's talking about, he said there's union in Christ. Now to elaborate on that, he compares Adam to Christ. Most of us are quite familiar with the doctrine, which is what we've just read, where we inherit a sinful nature because of Adam, right? Adam, okay, and I won't go into this. That's why um, holding on to the biblical account of creation is so crucial, right? We had that guy come speak to us the other day. But if you're going to say Genesis is a nice metaphor, a nice story, Paul didn't think so. Paul, like, takes Genesis quite literally and says Adam was a real man, and Adam really did sin. And by that, we have the whole doctrine of the new covenant. Okay, so if you're going to pull out Genesis, you're going to pull out the heart of the gospel. Okay, that's just another little side note. But Paul's talking about representation here. He says, as in Adam, all died. When Adam sinned, he set the trajectory of mankind forevermore. Before Adam, there was no death, by the way. Before he sinned, death didn't come in. Paul is saying, yeah, when he sinned, death came in. And Adam 
represented all of mankind. And so all of his descendants inherited that sinful nature, that human nature which dies and which is liable to sin and is given to sin and loves to sin. The fancy word for this is um, federal heads or covenantal heads. Um, some of these theologians, if you've read into that, will talk about it like that. But Adam represented all mankind. Jesus represents all believers. So when you are in Adam, that is before you come to Christ, you inherit all that Adam had and did. When you come to Christ and you are now placed in Christ, you inherit what he had and did. Okay? We were sinners in Adam, but you're righteous in Christ. Maybe just a note on the language here. It can get a bit confusing. Sometimes Paul says the many this and then the many that, or all this and all that. Just as a side note, what Paul's not implying here is that all are saved, that all are in union with Christ. Okay, that's, that's contrary to everything he just said before that and the rest of Scripture. That's a doctrine called universalism, which I won't go into now, which somehow believes that everyone will be saved and, and, and everyone is in Christ. That's not true. Paul has just said, you're t by placing your faith in Christ, by entrusting yourself to him, you become unified with him and then you are in Christ. And what's important about that is once you are in Christ, you're no longer in Adam. That's a hard one for us to accept, right? We still feel very Adam-like. We still, still experience and God doesn't suck us out of the world and sin never bothers us again. But what's important to realize as Paul unpacks in chapter 6 is that the power of sin has been broken. I realize for myself when I'm reading this stuff, I almost go like, no man, surely not. It sounds, it sounds too good to be true. It sounds like, oh, no, surely not, Lord. Surely, surely, surely it's not that I have actually died to sin. Surely I must try and die to sin. Surely... My walk with God now is to just keep killing my sin. On one hand, one hand, he says, by virtue of your union with Christ, you have died to sin. You have died to sin. The difference is for us to accept that by faith and to daily trust God to do that work in our lives, for the power of that work to come to pass more and more and more and more. Okay, as in verse 17, he says, those who receive, that's just, again, to say it's, it's, God doesn't force it on anyone. Those who receive Christ receive this. <clears throat> Another interesting thing that he says here is that the law increases the trespass. When Adam sinned, um, Adam disobeyed God, sin came in. Law came in. You'd think... And we like to think law constrains sin, but it, it actually does the opposite. It actually magnifies sin. So on the one hand, Paul says, where there's no law, there's no transgression. The law highlights and magnifies sin to indicate how sinful it is, that it may be utterly sinful, as Paul later says in Romans. And the other thing that it does is that it incites sin, it provokes sin. When our fleshly nature meets a law, guess what happens? 
fleshly nature wants to break that law. Fleshly nature doesn't instinctively go, oh, okay, yes, I obey. An, an illustration is, um, if you can think back to those dark days of lockdown. But um, I remember at one point my sister-in-law said, yeah, it's never been easier to be found doing something illegal, right? We all remember law upon law upon law upon law upon law to try and control things that weren't that controllable. But the more law, the more transgression. All of us broke many lockdown laws because you didn't even know about them. There were some that you just didn't even know about, but you were actually a transgressor, okay, according to the letter of that law. That's what law does. It highlights and it only creates more opportunities to be found a transgressor. And then, for many of us, maybe we must be honest, a certain law made us really excited to break it or <laughs> to try and do something else, especially when the frustration kicks in. That's just what law does. And Paul develops that further in Romans 7, which we'll get to next week. But it's an interesting observation here because from that he switches. Um, so, so when Paul says, so that from the, on the end, at the end of chapter 5, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also made, might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he asks a question which would have been a rebuttal to something, an argument that he would have heard against his gospel. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So, when we misunderstand grace and the law and everything, Paul has just said, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, some people might say, oh, well, then let's just keep sinning because then we can experience more grace, okay, which is a fallacy. But interestingly, that's not exactly what Paul's actually rebutting here, okay? That is, it's, that's a very faulty logic, but it's not even actually what Paul is rebutting here. Interestingly, that would have been something that the Jews said. What the Jews believed was that the more Torah, the more life. Okay, we've got the Old Testament. There's like a whole, if you can take the Old Testament laws times five, times ten, is actually what the Jewish legal system has, okay? There's not only the Torah, there's the Mishnah and there's the other stuff. There's a whole bunch of additions, okay? Judaism was not short on laws, <clears throat> But the belief, which is one that makes sense to our carnal mind, is you need more laws to control sin. We have a sin problem. What we do is we make a law. And when a little bit of sin squeezes out the side door, we make another law to push it back in. And when it squeezes out the bottom, we add another law to push it back in. And they said Paul's gospel is faulty. They said your gospel can't be true because you're taking out the law. How else do we deal with sin? Paul says, and this is where he goes really deep. Paul's gospel deals with sin, which is the gospel, by the way, which is the new covenant theology, deals with sin by killing it. The Jews had the law to try and control it. Our union with Christ means that death actually dies. What shall we say then, chapter 6? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And here's the crux of what Paul is saying. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says, my gospel is not mistaken. He says, Paul, Paul in explaining the gospel, says that no one will be made righteous by works of the law. So the Jews say, oh, well, what then? Now, are you, you dissing the law like this? How are we supposed to deal with sin? Paul says, justification by faith means union with Christ, which means union to his death, which means our death to sin, an actual spiritual reality, and it means union to his life. He says that is how sin is dealt with in the new covenant. Jews applied law to manage the problem of sin, which failed. In the new covenant, union to Christ actually kills the body of sin. Sin dies. And we'll explore next week in more depth the new covenant. But it was promised from Ezekiel and Jeremiah those days that God puts a new heart. Okay? He doesn't patch up the old one. He puts a new one in, which is amazing. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And he says in verse 3, do you not know? Which is something he says a lot in Romans. And he says it in Corinthians too. With all these churches, which is a great comfort for me. Because when I read this, I realize, you I mean, I didn't know. Which is okay. It's not something you easily know. It's not something you even master by your intellect. It's a work that the Spirit does in you. And the more you trust Him to do that work in you, the more real it becomes in you. Okay, this is not an intellect thing. You can meditate on it. You must meditate on it. And bring faith to that. And watch God go to work in your heart and transform you. <clears throat> Maybe just something interesting to say here in verse 4. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Now, he's not, he's not talking about water baptism here. Okay, so just hear me carefully now when I, when I say what I'm going to say. Paul is not saying that water baptism is the key to this reality. As in, you could be a Christian, but until you've been water baptized, you aren't dead to sin. He's saying, no, that's not what he's saying. By virtue of the fact of being justified by faith, being in union with Christ, you are in union with his death and in union with his resurrection. So the word baptism is used different ways in the, in the New Testament. Jesus speaks of his death as his baptism in a way. So, he's not talking literal water baptism here. He's saying, this is a fact. This has happened to you. But, Paul's also not anti-baptism. Just like we're not anti-band at the front. So, <clears throat> baptism is a, is, a, is a big part of New Covenant theology as well. And the New Testament... And the life of the church in the New Testament. So water baptism is a powerful sacrament. So a sacrament is something we do. And another example is communion. It's a sacrament that we do as part of your Christian faith. That it's a mystery. Let me say that whatever I'm going to try to explain now is always going to fall short. It's a mystery. It's for the same reason that fasting is a mystery, right? Why does God... Do stuff in your life often through your stomach. Like, 
the Greeks in us say, no, material world, spiritual, immaterial world. We don't understand that. But it's just true. It is just true, and it's a mystery. Baptism is a powerful public declaration of something that's already true in the Spirit. Just like communion is a powerful declaration of our salvation by the body and blood of Jesus. Right? Water in baptism is not magic, just like the wafer and the grape juice or the wine in communion is not magic. Okay? But when, we, when that act is accompanied with faith, it is very powerful. And powerful in ways that we can't even understand. Like we can't understand fasting or any of the other things we do with our bodies that have a spiritual implication. Okay, so I'm also not dissing baptism. You must definitely get baptized if you haven't been. It's very powerful. It's a powerful thing. And Jesus also got baptized. But this union with Christ and his death and resurrection does not hinge upon water baptism. It is already true. But undergoing baptism by faith, in a way, practically almost cements that in your life. That was my experience as well. A lot of things that you used to sort of struggle with, funnily enough, after I got baptized, like a lot of things just fell away. And it's a mystery. I can't, I'm not saying the water is magic, but when you do, it's not magic. When you, when you, when you bring these sacraments to God and you make this public declaration, he's on it. He's all over that thing. To work in your life powerfully. Okay, but it's a confirmation of something that's already true. So we don't get rebaptized, rebaptized so that we can try and die to sin. No, you are dead to sin. Okay? You are dead to sin. Verse 4 carries on. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. One who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never again die. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul knows that this is difficult for us to get our heads around, that When we read this, unbelief is the first thing that comes up and says, surely not, this is too good to be true, this can't be. The experience of sin is, and it's um, irritation and tyranny, is just too real, Paul, I don't know. You must be talking about other Christians who've really gone a long road with God and really, by their zeal and their constant effort, killed sin. Paul says, no, you are united with Christ, You are united with him. Your old self, in verse 6, was crucified, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. As in verse 7 to 10, that it may no longer have dominion over you. He is stating a spiritual fact, a spiritual reality. 
And then he says, as he says elsewhere in his testaments, do you not know, therefore consider yourselves, reckon yourselves. In verse 11 he says, consider yourselves, that is, remember, believe, accept, and walk in by faith the spiritual truth that you are dead to sin. And more than that, alive to God in Christ Jesus. So I think I'm going to stop there for today. We've unpacked a lot of theological stuff. But I want to encourage you to keep going and reading through this. When you understand the overall thread of Paul's argument, what Paul is trying to say, you realize he's actually speaking very simply. He's actually saying very simple things when you understand the overarching theme. <clears throat> but so... so Next week, and, and the whole thrust of this sermon series is to say, these are glorious spiritual truths. How do we experience them more and more? Because as I said earlier, that's not often our experience, right? We don't often experience the power of God and say, oh, I'm a poor sinner and I'm struggling, 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 struggling all life long. And yes, until you die, sin will be there to come and grab your shirt and say this and try and dictate to you, but you must understand that it no longer has dominion over you. As Andrew Murray says, we must retain that spirit of victory in our hearts, right? If you, f if you struggle with and fail in sin today, you get up, thank you for your mercy, Lord. Even more, thank you, Lord, that I'm actually dead to that thing. I have died to that thing, and that thing will no longer have dominion over me, okay? And you start again in victory, not self-pity. You start again in victory. And we lay hold of these day by day. The, the more I walk with God, I realize it's actually daily. Hourly faith, like dreaming 20 years ahead is just not something I do anymore. It's like, even if you read the Lord's Prayer, it's got a daily element to it, right? Like, give us today our daily bread. Don't worry about next week's bread. Just take it today. The next day is the next day. And so it is with faith. Faith is exercised daily and hourly. So I wanted to, again, I'm just going to ask Hannes um, and Laura just to instrumental, do some instrumental stuff for us there. While we just, I just want to create a, a time. It's going to be five minutes for us to respond to God. Okay, so it's not indefinite. Don't get awkward. But I am going to allow five minutes <laughs> for you to just respond to God. And then we'll, we'll pray together at the end. So just quiet your heart, close your eyes, you can be silent before Him, you can express whatever's on your heart to Him, you can pray. But after all has been said, let's respond to the Father.
as we close, I want to invite you to, to just pray along with me. These deep um, scriptural truths, we experience them by a continuation of faith, exercised daily. And it's a faith in and reliance upon the work of the Holy Spirit to work powerfully in us. When we have faith, we have faith in the finished work of the cross. But we also have faith in the present power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us to transform us. So if you have entrusted yourself to the Lord and you, you are united with Him and you, you've been saved by Him and justified with Him, I'm just going to say a prayer that you guys can say after me. And I want to encourage you, say it with even the smallest little mustard seed of faith. So you can repeat after me. Thank you, Lord, that I am united with you. That my old self has been crucified and that I am dead to sin. Sin no longer has, nor will ever have again, dominion over me. Thank you that I can walk in newness of life. Thank you that I am alive to you and the Father. Thank you for your spirit dwelling in me. Thank you for your power at work in me to transform and sanctify me. Today I entrust myself to you, confident of your commitment and power to renewing me more and more into your image. that I may bear the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. I'd like us to just close in a song. If there are any of you who would like to pray with someone, you're welcome to come to the front. I can pray with you. There are lots of other people to pray with you. I mean, especially if you've never entrusted yourself to the Lord. If you haven't come to the Lord before with your sin and said, Lord, forgive me and save me, we'd love to pray with you through that. But otherwise, let's all stand and just close in worship. And you're welcome to come to the front for prayer.